Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but caught is a wheel, it all comes round again. And here I am once more on a new phase of the journey, one to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast will be to examine the climax, the falling action, and the resolution of the endings to each of his novels, and break it down by character themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I will also weigh in on whether or not I personally happen to like the ending. And today I am here to discuss the ending of Duma Key. But first, I just want to welcome you all back and acknowledge that there's a little bit of a lie in the beginning of this podcast. I said, you know, each week I will review um, that as a lie clearly because it has been much longer than a week. So everyone that has been tuning into the Stephen King cast that has kept me in your feed, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and for anyone that is tuning in for the first time, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Um, I hope that you enjoy all of the older episodes and this episode and every episode that has yet to come. Uh, before I get to my review of the conclusion of Duma Key, I do want to read uh, some listener emails. Um, and I'm going to begin with Bob, who writes, I listened to your latest podcast on which you said that you weren't really a fan of Billy Summers. I hear what you're saying about King using a character who is a writer frequently. However, I'm liking Billy Summers despite his element of the story. I still haven't finished reading it, but it's keeping me engaged so far. What are your thoughts on Lisey's story? You may have a podcast covering your thoughts on this story, but I haven't listened to it yet because I haven't finished the book yet. For some reason, I have been having a hard time sticking with Lisey's story and getting into it. I'm a couple hundred pages into it and plan on finishing it, but it's taking a while because it's a hard read for me and don't know why. Did you have this type of experience? Maybe it's the abundance of interior monologues and the use of made-up words, blood pool, but I'm not sure. Um, I just want to uh, jump in, and I'm telling everyone right now, longtime listeners, uh, this is not a Richard Bachman situation uh, in which I am writing to myself using a pseudonym. Um, I am not Bob, okay? Everything that I just read, this is from uh, Bob's own words, all right? This, these, these are Bob's own criticisms of Lisey's story. So Bob continues, I only had this problem with one other King book and it was either Desperation or The Regulators. So that's how you know that I'm not Bob, okay? Because Bob and I agree on Lisey's story. I don't agree with Bob on Desperation or The Regulators. Uh, I can't remember which. I do enjoy your podcast very much and especially enjoyed your shows on 20th Century Ghosts, especially your breakdown of the title story and pop art and Strange Weather by Joe Hill. Uh, thanks for bringing us your podcasts, Bob. Bob, thank you for writing in. Um, and as I just joked, um, I, I don't like Lisey's story. I just reviewed the ending in the last episode and I uh, had my breakdown of the entire book uh, years ago um, in, uh, when I reviewed the, the entirety of it. But, um, and, I, and, and I acknowledge that maybe that there is something that I am missing. Um, I, I go back and forth. Sometimes I say I'll never read the book again. Sometimes I say to myself, you know what, I'm just going to wait a few years until I'm older and more in the um, 
you know, the mindset of where King might have been with uh, more life experience behind me uh, to fully uh, appreciate it. I don't know. But as I will talk about today with Duma Key, this was a novel that I, I did not enjoy upon first read, but have come to absolutely love. Um, so the, a book that you just might dislike on first go around or second go around, maybe you're just not um, where you need to be uh, in order to, to fully access its, its truths and its strengths. And then again, maybe uh, Lisey's story is just a book that has a little bit uh, too many uh, little inside jokes and it isn't fully formed. Uh, but, you know, I will continue to uh, go back to Lisey's story every 10 or so years. Uh, so if you stick with me, I'll let you know how I feel about Lisey's story um, in another 10 years or so. Um, but Bob, thank you for writing in um, and, you know, with, with what I just said, I would encourage you to go back to Desperation or The Regulators. I found um, both to be incredibly strong novels. Uh, the Regulators, I don't think, gets as much love as Desperation, and I think that both are equally strong for completely different reasons. Um, and it has been my pleasure to review the works of Joe Hill as well. Pop art is absolutely beautiful, and Strange Weather uh, was all of the stories in Strange Weather I thought were, were fantastic. Then we have Mike who writes, uh, spoiler alert, so first of all, uh, no, Mike does not write that, but it is a spoiler alert for Gwendy's final task. Uh, dear Constant Host, it is nice that you are back to putting out episodes again. Like ma many of your listeners, I'm sure I never really got tired of Stephen King content. Uh, I just finished uh, Gwendy's final task and thought I'd ask you about a few things that raised questions for me. I recall you saying in one of your more recent episodes that you were halfway done, so I'm thinking that you're also finished by now. In case you are not, here be spoilers. One, we are reunited with not only Gwendy, but also Richard Ferris. I always figured this to be Randall Flagg, who was, of course, one of Roland's adversaries in the Dark Tower and pretty much the adversary of every story he's ever been in. But he's seemingly portrayed as an ally in this book. He wants Gwendy to destroy the box, a contrast to the Tahin that killed Gwendy's husband and looked to the, use the box to make the tower fall. Granted, at this point, it's been almost 20 years since I read the Dark Tower books and four or five or even six years since I've listened to your Dark Tower episodes. So maybe I'm misremembering uh, mis Flagg's intention in those novels. Perhaps the chaos Flagg has historically sought is not the same as the Tahin. Is that right? Is it awfully hard to be Randall Flagg if the universe does not exist? Two, and this is a spoiler alert for the Dark Tower book seven, The Dark Tower. Please keep this in mind for this next question. Related, Ferris is sick, deathly ill, in fact, in this book. This is, of course, quite different from Flagg's demise at the hands. Again, spoiler alert for book seven of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower. Uh, this is different from Flagg's demise at the hands of Crawling Legs of Mordred. This perhaps is due to Ferris not being an alias of Flagg, but maybe a twinner? Thoughts? Number three, it is mentioned in Gwendy's final task that the Crimson King is dead. I don't recall the Crimson, Queen, uh, Crimson King coming up much since Patrick Danville mostly erased him in book seven. So there's, of course, a whole new book series worth of story that could have resulted in the Crimson King's death in the interim. So I'm really just asking what you think about the Crimson King being killed off and killed off in this fashion. Uh, just mention as an afterthought, do you think the Crimson King being killed in any way relates to Roland succeeding 
in a subsequent trek to the tower. Anyway, it's good that you're back, and I'm selfishly looking forward to another version of the King Cast after you get through the endings. Long days and pleasant nights, Mike. Uh, Mike, so let me uh, break this down uh, by each of the points. First of all, these are all uh, wonderful, uh, thoughtful questions um, that are uh, that naturally come up, I think, if you read uh, Gwendy's Final Task and think of it through a critical lens uh, to see how it uh, correlates with the entirety of what has come before in the publication history of Stephen King. So, with Randall Flagg, uh, and I think I talked about this in my review of Gwendy's Final Task, but the characterization of the Richard Ferris character, who, you know, I believe was, you know, really meant to invoke Randall Flagg. I mean, why else create an RF character who is coming to... Castle Rock, you know, that was one of my criticisms about Wendy, the, the whole Gwendy thing, is that it, it, it seems very, you know, though Stephen King is co-writing it, at least the first and, and the third, th- there's a fanfic quality to it. Um, and so the idea of uh, Randall Flagg coming to Castle Rock and abutting with uh, Derry and there's the Dark Tower and the Taheen and references to uh, the Crimson King. You know, I mean, it... Yeah, like I said, I, I, it, there, there are components to it that can be read as um, very fan fiction-y. Um, so, to me, this was, you know, you know, Richard Ferris was wearing all black. Who else wears all black? The Man in Black. Who is the Man in Black? Randall Fleck. So, I mean, yes, I mean, I think that he is meant to be Randall Flagg, and Randall Flagg has been a chaos agent who, you know, his allegiances have seemingly shifted depending on the books that you read. If you read him in uh, The Stand, he is, you know, really just embodying chaos. He's doesn't have a grand plan. He's more like the, the, the Joker um, in, in The Dark Knight. Uh you know, like he says, you know, I'm, I'm just chasing cars. You know, I mean, he's someone, he, he was an opportunist. He only came to power because the world died. He was not uh, instrumental in the, the, the fall of the, 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 the world of the sand. Um, you know, uh, humanity's hubris is, and he took advantage of it. Um, you know, and, you know, he, he, he thought that he was the end-all, be-all, um, and his belief in himself ultimately was his undoing. Um, you know, then we see him in Eyes of the Dragon, uh, in which, you know, he, he, he seems to be a little bit more shrewd, um, and less, uh, I don't want to say passionate, because, like, I mean, he is very, uh, passionate might not be the, the, the right word, but, you know, full of passion, um, in the stand, uh, you know, full of hot air, uh, maybe is, is a better uh, way of phrasing it, you know, in um, Eyes of the Dragon, he's colder, um, maybe more calculating, a little bit more shrewd, um, but th- there are similarities there, I-, I would say. You can you, you can definitely draw the line between the flag that we see in the stand to the flag as we see him in Eyes of the Dragon, and keep in mind that they are, share the same name, um, and I think that once we make the connection between those two, then we're able to 
connect the triangle uh, to the man in black uh, from the, the the gunslinger, and and this is where we start to get these uh, these these connections. Um, but within each interpretation, you know, there are variations and differences, um, but none so varied as the interpretation of Richard Ferris. Um, so, no, I mean, my, my criticism there is that uh, Richard Ferris, um, is, uh, you know, an ally. He's, he's not an, an agent of chaos. He is not working on behalf of either the uh, Crimson King or himself, you know, and, and, you know, in each of the books, as, as we have seen Flag, you know, like I said, we have seen him with shifting allegiances, so we never really know who exactly he's working for. He says he's working for the Crimson King, but is he really? I never really got the impression that he was. Um, I got the impression that he, you know, he claimed that he was, but I got the impression that he was always working for himself. Um, but here we see him, you know, working on behalf of a greater good. He is working on behalf of the white. Um, and even if he hasn't sent by the white or gone or the turtle or whoever, he's definitely working in favor of, you know, he, he wants to assist um, the goodness of the world to stop uh, these chaotic, um, antagonistic, tragic events from happening, ultimately he does not want the tower to fall, which just doesn't seem very Randall Flaggish or Richard Farishis or um, Walter O'Dimishness. You know, it, it, it doesn't seem to be what he would do. So the, the, I, I don't quite get it. When it, when it comes to the, the Gwendy books, I just don't quite get this particular interpretation. Um, so maybe this is another go around on uh, Ka, on the wheel of Ka, and maybe this means that when, uh, spoiler alert, again, please, spoiler alert for the Dark Tower series, um, but after, you know, things are reset um, by Roland, you know, in Roland's own existence, maybe it has... Uh, you know, a, a very thematic effect throughout the, the multiverse. And maybe this results with a, a kinder version of Walter Paddock. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, and this goes back to your second point. Maybe this isn't Flag. Maybe it's a twinner. That's a great idea. It's a great, great idea. I mean, we have seen... Um, multiple incarnations of uh, characters that have uh, that are devilish or uh, wizard-like, um, whether it be Flag or Leland Gaunt or Andre Linoge. We see these roguish, charming, um, magic. Uh, Characters, so maybe this is another one that happens to be closer to Randall Flag um, than Andre Linoge or uh, Leland Gaunt. Um, maybe there's more of a relation there. I don't know. That's a really interesting point. Um, and in terms of the Crimson King being dead, uh, maybe I don't know, or maybe they're just the, the 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 world thinks or the multiverse thinks that the Crimson King is dead. I don't know. There's definitely a lot of questions there, and I'm not sure what any of them mean. 
Um, but these are wonderful questions, and if anyone has any thoughts, please write into the Stephen King cast at yahoo.com. All right, everyone, I'm going to get into my review of the conclusion of Duma Key. So before I get to the actual conclusion, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. So, wealthy Minnesotan building, uh, building contractor Edgar Fremantle barely survives a severe worksite accident wherein his truck is crushed by a crane. Fremantle loses his right arm while suffering severe head injuries, impairing his speech, vision, and memory. During his long recovery, Edgar experiences suicidal thoughts and violent abusive mood swings, spurring his wife to file for divorce. On advice of his psychologist, Dr. Kamen, Edgar relocates southward, renting a beach house on the island of Dumaki off Florida's coast. Common further advises Fremantle to rekindle his one-time sketching hobby as a restorative. Edgar retains local college student Jack Cantori as a part-time shopper and personal assistant. Soon after, Fremantle meets and befriends the island's other full-time residents, octogenarian heiress uh, Elizabeth Eastlake, sufferer of final-stage dementia whose family's trust owns most of the island, and her live-in attendant Jerome Wireman himself a once gifted attorney whose wife and daughter's tragic deaths led him to unsuccessfully attempt suicide via a gunshot wound. Decades-old paranormal phenomena revisit the island as Fremantle delves obsessively into his art. Edgar creates with furious energy, lapsing into uh, semi-conscious haze. His paintings and sketches capture psychic visions, revealing his ex-wife's romantic affair, his friend's suicidal depression, and his younger daughter's, uh, Ilsa's, fleeting marital engagement. Later, Fremantle uses his newfound artistic powers to manipulate the outside world, healing Wireman's degenerating neurological condition and suffocating a child murderer in his jail cell. During Ilsa's visit to Dumaquee, the father-daughter duo drive to a disused, overgrown section of the island where colors seem unnaturally vivid, and Ilsa becomes violently ill. Elizabeth Eastlake warns Edgar via telephone conversations that Duma has never been a lucky place for daughters and that his paintings should be sold to multiple geography, ge- geographically distant buyers lest their otherworldly power grow too concentrated or too dangerous. Fremantle comes to learn that Duma Key's beach house has hosted many successful artists during its 80-year tenure. Elizabeth Eastlake was herself a prodigious artist in her childhood, and both Edgar and Wireman manifest pronounced psychic talents while on or near the island, seemingly stemming from their debilitating brain injuries. Fremantle's artworks become more vivid and distressing, featuring ship and seaside compositions whose vessels and mysterious red-cloaked passengers draw nearer to the shore in each successive painting. Elizabeth uh, grows alternately lucid and then incoherent as her dementia worsens, scattering her beloved china figurines, murmuring murmuring that the table is leaking, and repeatedly urging Wireman to throw one faceless figurine into her koi pond. In a moment of chill and clarity, Eastlake asks Edgar if he has begun painting the ship yet. Fremantle's paintings attract statewide, statewide acclaim. He hosts an art exhibition and accompanying lecture at an upscale Sarasota gallery, gaining a devoted audience, including Edgar's visiting loved ones and yielding half a million in sales. 
Elizabeth Eastlake makes a rare, rare apparent, sorry, rare appearance at said exhibition. Upon seeing Edgar's ship and seaside paintings, she reacts violently, making cryptic references to her childhood playthings and long-drowned sisters, warning that she has grown so strong the table is leaking and drown her back to sleep before suffering and incapacitating and ultimately fatal stroke. Fremantle notices previously unseen details in his work, the ship's rotting sails, children's toys littering its decks, screaming faces hiding in its foamy wake. Narrative timelines interweave as Edgar Fremantle's present-day nightmare parallels the 1927 Eastlake familial tragedy. Young Elizabeth, suffering a head wound in a childhood horse carriage accident, turns to sketching and scribbling as a means of recuperation. An outside presence, Percy, speaks to Elizabeth, sometimes in her mind or sometimes through her ragdoll, filling her with knowledge, reality-altering powers, and a gradual infiltration of sinister urges. Elizabeth directs her bootlegger's father to a pile of ship debris in the shallows, unearthing a red-cloaked porcelain figure. The girl's sketches grow progressively more alien and malevolent, until, driven by fear, she rebels against Percy, provoking the, the entity's wrath. As an act of retaliation, Elizabeth's twin sisters are lured into the ocean to drown. Only Elizabeth's nursemaid, Melda, takes direct action as Percy's drowned sister things move beachward. The governess holds them off by means of silver jewelry, buying precious moments with her life while Elizabeth neutralizes the Percy statuette. Fremantle faces similar otherworldly dangers while unraveling the Eastlake mystery. He returns home to find where our sister childishly scrawled on an unused canvas. Edgar then discovers that those in possession of his artwork either die or are possessed and driven into murderous deeds by Percy. He persuades his loved ones to discard their paintings, but not before a co-opted art critic drowns his daughter, Elsie. As Edgar, Jack, and Wireman race to discover the secret of Mad Persephone's rise and subsequent banishment, the ghost ship's undead passengers return for them, fighting their way to the island's overgrown region, Heron's Roost, the original East Lake Manor. The trio le uh, locate the Percy carving, trapped in fresh as opposed to her native salt water, and sealed in a water-filled ceramic keg of table whiskey in which a crack has formed during the passage of years. Uh, hence, the table is leaking. Edgar returns the figurine to its freshwater slumber and faces down one final Percy temptation wearing the face of his drowned daughter, Ilsie. Fremantle and Wireman then fly north to Minnesota where they drop the statuette in Lake Phelan's freshwater depths so it can forever sleep undisturbed. Wireman makes plans to move to Mexico and start up a hotel business. He asks Fremantle to join him when he is ready and if he wants to. However, Wireman dies of a heart attack only two months later um, before Fremantle has a chance to see him again. Edgar Fremantle then commences his final painting, a massive tropical storm destroying Duma Key. So, what's the criteria for a good ending? Uh, I'm going to ask a series of questions, beginning with this. Does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that is consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the book? And I would say yes. I mean, this is, this is a character-driven novel. Now, I want to reiterate 
uh, this is now the second time I'm talking about Duma Key um, in full um, as a focus, but uh, you know, longtime listeners will know that I've definitely referenced Duma Key throughout the years because when I first read it, you know, coming off the mythology heavy and plot heavy um, stories of the Dark Tower, where everything was really just uh, you know, coming to a head, uh, that, that was, you know, looking for the, the ways in which all of these different characters were, were, were interacting with each other and the way all these different plots were interacting with each other to, to finally resolve the conclusion of this decades spanning, uh, opus of the, the Dark Tower. Post the Dark Tower, I was very critical of Stephen King and I was just out on him, um, and when I first read Duma Key, I was just very lukewarm on this novel because it was just such a, I don't want, it, it, to me it's not doing a favor by calling it a hangout book, but in some ways it is. You are really just hanging out with Edgar. It is Edgar's story. You are just really in this world of melancholy and rejuvenation and second chances um, that, that, that life gives him because you're just, you, you're, you're right there. You are right there. So the appropriate conclusion to this character, you know, comes with his conclusion of Dumaki and what Dumaki means for him as it being a second chance. And I'll get to that in terms of themes, but this is a, a novel that began with tragedy and concludes with tragedy. And with each of the tragedies that occur, we see an opportunity for life to continue. And I think that that's important. And again, I will get back into that in a little bit more detail with the themes, symbolisms, and motifs. But for him to start off his time at Dumaki having just survived tragedy and recovering from tragedy and finding new life in this place of beauty and horror and finding friendship and um, new worth of himself and new talents um, that he finds within, within himself. Um, we see this through to the end where he he sees more tragedy and then again overcomes it and faces it and defeats it he continues on he continues to live his life so yes i think that this is consistent with the characters actions conflicts or themes of the book does it successfully wrap up the plot specifically do the events build upon one another with consistency yes we had seen mysteries and 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 um pieces of a puzzle of the history of Dumaki and the beach house and the artistry throughout the years um, and uh, Persephone and the ships. And so, yes, the, it, it does wrap up the plot. And if I was going to knock anything within this book, it would be the plot, the actual structured story. Percy is defeated. Edgar defeats Percy. I do find it lacking. I will say that. So I would say at the ending is 
I'm going to jump right to it. I'm more favorable on the ending because I'm more favorable on the entirety of the book. But I would say that if we were to criticize anything of the uh, the, the conclusion, it would be the, the, the plot component here. Because I do feel that it is somewhat lacking. Um, going to the house, the house just being overgrown, them being warded off by an alligator and not some other mythological creature or something stranger than that. It, it just it seems... Um, less than to me um, with a novel about a mysterious uh, ghost ship the fact that the ghost ship itself doesn't factor in um, as a physical entity I think is a, a missed opportunity to the, the wonders and the, the, the magic and the mysteries of, of the, the ocean um, and, and ocean life on a uh, you know, seaside, uh, coastal, tropical uh, location. I think there's missed opportunity there <coughs> from a plot perspective as, as the plot um, interacts with, with the setting. So I, I do find that, uh, th though I think technically the, it, it does wrap up the plot, we get the conclusion of, of Percy. Um, and I don't need to know the history of this this ghostly character. I, I don't need to know the background. I don't need there to be an explanation for this mysterious supernatural creature. I don't need that. Okay, so that's not a knock. The fact that that's not fully explored, totally fine with. In fact, I want that mystery to endure. But uh, the the fact that the the, the conclusion from a plot perspective is not that harrowing um, or doesn't live up to the supernatural surrealism um, or the um, culmination of the fulfillment of artistic expression um, as it is depicted in this novel from a character perspective. I mean, artistry is such a massive component of this book, uh, and to have the the main character be defined by this rekindled ability of art, to not have that art in of itself be a part of the conclusion, I, I think it's a missed opportunity. Spoiler alert for needful things, and th this could actually be used against me, and I, I I totally understand. But the throughout the the entirety of Needful Things, one of the aspects of Alan Pangborn's character was that he was a prestidigitator. You know, he was someone that practiced just, you know, everyday illusions and, and magic tricks. And this is something that played into the end of the novel, where when the like, atmosphere, the environment of Needful Things, Maine, or uh, Castle Rock, Maine, was just just so rich with magics. His own magic was amplified. Um, I'm fine with that. Some people aren't. But, uh, I mean, I just think similarly, something like that could be a part of the conclusion of Dumaki that would have been a little bit more naturalistic for the ending of this novel, and I, I feel like this particular component is somewhat lacking. 
Next question. Does the conclusion serve the theme, symbolism, and motifs? Yes. Um, because this book is about second chances and the ending demonstrates that if there is, that, that there's no real thing as clean second chances. A second chance is really just a, another part of life. Um, you know, just like we saw the artist granted special powers uh, by the beach house, Percy, and going back generations, okay? Like, that's just life. Um, life continued in Dumaki, and life granted um, these second chances and artistry to the people that lived in this beach house year after year after year. Um, it's just another example of how life continues, and Edgar moves to Florida to start over, but just because you're starting over doesn't mean that it stops life from its fullest, which means that you're going to get triumph, but you're also going to get tragedy. And we see that here. It started with tragedy, his injury, his descent into depression and anger um, and divorce. And then we see the, the book as this second chance, but... Yes, he, he, he has a friendship with, with Wireman. He uh, has a, a new lease on life with his art, but it doesn't stop the tragedy because that's a part of life as well. And that means that there's really no second chances. It's just life. Life keeps moving along with tragedy and triumph. Um, and we see this. Like, his daughter dies, but he still has victory over Percy. So it's both, and that's life. And I think that that serves the theme of the book. Um, next question, it's, you know, what's the most famous scene in the novel and does it appear in the conclusion of the story? Again, I, I don't think that this, if, if there is a famous scene, the most famous scene, and it factors into the conclusion of the book, I think that it helps. I don't think it hurts a book if the uh, most famous scene isn't in the conclusion. Um, in this case, I don't know if there is a famous scene of Dumaki. Dumaki has not been adapted. Dumaki is not talked about. I don't know if there is a famous scene. Um, and are there any other factors that we need to consider? Um, yeah, I just think that this is an unsung triumph from Stephen King. I think this is a wonderful, wonderful novel that I hope is revisited uh, throughout the years because it's beautiful and it's wonderful and I will again take this opportunity to please um, I really hope that uh, Mike Flanagan um, likes this book and adapts this book um, into one of his masterpieces because I love what Mike Flanagan is able to do uh, with Stephen King properties, and I think that this would be an incredible, um, an absolutely incredible adaptation from Mike Flanagan. I think that he would just nail it, and he would um, bring the tragedy and the triumph and the horror and the humor and the, the heart um, in this incredible location to life um, in such a beautiful way. So please, Mike Flanagan, Please, please, please make this happen. Do I like the ending? Uh, nah, not really. I don't really like it. Um, but is it a good ending? Yes, I will say that, yeah, it's a good ending. So I happen to like 35 out of 41 endings, and I would say 36 out of 41 endings are good. So thus concludes my review of the conclusion of Duma Key. 
and I will be back next time. I almost, I almost said next week, but not next week. I'll be back next time for um, Under the Dome. Oh, it's going to be interesting to talk about the conclusion of Under the Dome. Uh, people just straight up don't like that ending. I can't wait to talk about it in a little bit more detail. So uh, if you like the Stephen King cast, you like talking about the Stephen King cast, please write into stephenkingcast at uh, yahoo.com um, and tell me your thoughts or and or leave me a review. That would greatly help me out, everybody. Um, so... Um, on iTunes. Uh, so thank you very much and may you have long days and pleasant nights and I will see you here uh, next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.